Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome everyone who's watching from one of our four other campuses as well. So good to be here with you today. Uh, We are in part five of our series called The Gospel of Luke. We've been learning about the life and ministry of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, through the lens of Luke. And uh, today, we are going to be in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Luke 7. You can turn there in your Bibles or you can watch it on the, on the screen. Today's message is called, Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover. Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover. I don't know, have you ever done that before? You ever judged a book by its cover? You're scrolling through Amazon, you're at a bookstore, you just, you kind of, I don't really know how else you judge a book, really. Um, I mean, you have to look at the cover, right? And, but the, the problem is, I think, when I've judged a book by its cover, I've probably missed out on a lot of really good books with a lot of really bad covers. And I probably missed. I probably had to endure some some kind of rough books because they had a really appealing cover. It made me think of this book that I got when I was in college from my dad. This book um, is is not the coolest looking book in the world. Um, I was very unimpressive. It's very old. It um, it's got stains all over it. It's worn out. You can barely see the title. It's falling apart, and it it smells really bad. Um, but my dad gave it to me, and. Thankfully, at some point, probably not right away, I opened the cover, and I found this book by Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And over the last 10 years, this book has given me so much wisdom, so much truth, has been such an encouragement. Thank God I opened this ratty cover. But here's the thing. That illustration, don't judge a book by its cover, is talking more about people than it is about books, more about people, right? We don't make judgments, uh, uh, we shouldn't make judgments about people based on their outward appearance alone, right? We know this, right? We, we know that a person is more than how much money they make, what kind of car they drive, what, what kind of house they live in, what kind of job they have, or how many people they know, right? A, a person is so much more than that, and oftentimes when we take the time to get to know someone, we find out that there's more than meets the eye, there's more than what it appears to be. The, the Bible says this, that God looks at the heart, but man looks at the outside. Man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the heart, meaning it's more about what's on the inside than what's on the outside. And when thinking about a book, aren't you glad that there's a lot of time dedicated to the pages? A lot more time than perhaps the cover? I want to encourage you with this thought this morning. As a church, we should be more concerned, be more concerned with your heart than your appearance. Be more concerned with the pages of your book than the cover. Like I said, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 7 today. We're going to learn about three characters that if we judge them just by appearance alone, just by the cover alone, we would really miss the mark. So we're going to be in uh, 736. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Now, we're going to stop there, and we're going to get back into the rest of the story later on. But the first character that we see in this story is Simon. Simon the Pharisee. This is the first time in our series that we're encountering that word, that title, Pharisee, and so it deserves a little bit of unpacking. We don't use that word today very much, maybe not at all. A Pharisee in the time of Christ was someone, a religious leader at the time, a religious person who paid strict, strict attention to the Jewish law, right? Someone who dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's of the Jewish law to every single detail. And they did so in a way that could be easily seen by other people. They had a really good cover for their book. Let me explain. When they would pray, they would pray these uh, long-winded prayers, and they would use these eloquent words, and they would do so in a public way where everyone could see how religious and close to God they were. And when they would fast, they fasted more than anyone else, they would go without food, and when they did that, they would kind of disfigure their face, and they would, they would make their appearance look like they were in a lot of discomfort so that everyone would know that they're fasting. And when they would give to the poor, they would do so, do so in such a way where other people would see what they were doing. They had a really good cover on the outside. But this is what Jesus says of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus calls them out and says, you appear to be one way, when in fact you're really not that way at all. You appear to be something on the outside, but on the inside you're something completely different. On the outside you look perfect, like a tomb that's painted white, but on the inside you're full of death and decay and everything that is unclean. On the outside, you look morally good, but on the inside, you're full of self-righteousness, pride, and greed. There's more than meets the eye. And here's the thing. They didn't like Jesus very much. It's very apparent as we get through the Gospels that they didn't really agree with the way he did ministry. See, Jesus um, was oftentimes serving The poor, the outcast, the sinner, the tax collector, the prostitute. People who, in fact, fact, the, the Pharisees would have avoided. They wouldn't want to even have contact with these people because they would... Uh, it kind of ruin their reputation. It would kind of tarnish their cover of a book and, and maybe even make them ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Listen, this is what uh, Jesus says of them in Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, again, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Meaning you follow these religious traditions to the T, and yet you ignore these big things. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, these like herbs, 
which are really light, by the way. They're small. Like, you, you give a tenth of those. You pay strict attention to every little detail of your religion, and yet you ignore people. You ignore justice and mercy and faithfulness. You care so much about what it appears to be, and yet the inside is rotten. So, if they didn't like Jesus and they didn't approve of what he was doing, why on earth would Simon, of all people, invite Jesus to his house for dinner? It's a good question. Thank you for asking. We don't know. Uh, The text isn't really clear about why Simon invites him over for dinner, but we do know this, that oftentimes the pattern of the Pharisees was was that they would invite Jesus into a conversation or invite him over with with the intent of trying to trick him. Trying to like get him to like teach something that wasn't quite right with their uh, view on the religious ceremonial law or their traditions. And, and so they'd try to trip him up and trick him. And we really don't have any reason to believe that Simon has any good motive for inviting Jesus over. But as we consider Simon, this Pharisee, who Jesus later calls a whitewashed tomb, I'd like for us to consider this question. Have you ever worked harder on your religious exterior than on your spiritual interior? Have you ever worked harder on the cover of your book than on the pages? Have you you ever tried to appear more spiritual than you actually were? Faithful church attendance is a good thing. Sharing biblical Christian Facebook posts, sure, why not? Good thing, sometimes. Tithing, giving to the church, it's a good thing. Giving to charity, good thing. Maybe not swearing, not watching certain kinds of movies. Good things, but all outward things. And you could do all of those things. You could go to church every single day and yet still have a heart that has not been transformed by Jesus. So, Jesus was invited not sure why, but he goes anyway. Goes to the Pharisee's house for dinner. And in comes the second character of our story, the woman. Now, before we like, assume that it's normal that a woman would just come in uninvited to a dinner party and start weeping at Jesus' feet and anointing them with ointment and kissing them and wiping them, like before we just assume that that's normal, we need to unpack some cultural things about this story. And the first thing is we have to understand the table, right? So it says that they reclined at table. That doesn't mean that they were laying back in lazy boy recliners. No, they, they, they actually, rather than having a table that was waist height, they had a table that was kind of set on the floor a little bit more. And when they would recline, they'd lay down on their side at the table. And their feet would be kind of out towards the outside of the room. And if you were to look at it from the top down, it would probably look like a wheel with a hub with spokes kind of going out. So they would lay down at dinner, which makes sense why the woman was behind him weeping at his feet. And when you would have a dinner party, it would be not uncommon, especially if there was a teacher or a rabbi or, or someone of prominence or importance that was there, that guests would kind of flow in and out to listen to what the teacher was saying. So it wasn't uncommon, it wasn't unexpected that there would be guests at the dinner party who may have not been invited. But what was unexpected for Simon was that this particular woman would be there. 
As a matter of fact, she may have been the last person whom Simon would have thought to show up at his dinner party. And she is aware of that. She knows that. Imagine this, a woman who is known for all the bad she's ever done. It says here that she was a woman of the city, a sinner. We don't even know her name. It doesn't even say her name, but she has a reputation that goes before her. So everyone knows this woman. She's a sinner, it says, which is really just a polite way of saying what the message reads as the town harlot. In our story, she's a woman without a name but with a reputation that precedes her, the kind of, cer- the kind of woman that was certainly not the kind of woman that Simon would have expected to show up, a woman known for all the bad she's ever done. And here's the thing. She hears that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. And she overcomes whatever type of reservation she has about going to the house of someone who has avoided you, who has already prejudged you, separated themselves from you. And she goes to his house and stands at the feet of Jesus, and she just begins to weep and sob. Not just like a single tear. This wasn't like a Kodak moment. This wasn't a, a Hallmark movie. This isn't, just a, a, this isn't like a pretty type of, this is like mascara running down, ugly crying. Like, women, you know what I'm talking about. Like, there's just, some, there's just a way in, in, in which she was crying that, that wet and soaked the feet of Jesus. And seeing that Jesus' feet were wet and dirty, by the way, she kneels down and she lets down her hair. Something that women didn't do in public. A woman's hair was known to be her glory her pride, and her beauty. And she uses her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. And then she begins to kiss the feet of Jesus. Not like the way that she's kissed in the past, not in a sensual, not in a sexual way in any way, but as a sign of worship and adoration and gratitude. And she takes this alabaster flask full of ointment, which no doubt cost her money. And she anoints not the head of Jesus, but the feet of Jesus. This woman has a rough exterior, a tattered cover of a book. A woman with no name, but a reputation that goes before her. But on the inside is a heart of worship. But on the inside is a heart of gratitude and adoration to her Lord. This woman was not a whitewashed tomb like Simon. She was a treasure buried in the dirt. And as we consider this woman, would we ask the question, Have you ever let the shame of your past keep you from coming to the feet of Jesus? Have you ever let the shame of your past keep you from coming to the feet of Jesus? Because if you are here today, chances are you have a past. 
I don't care if it's your first day or your 50th year. You have a past. And that past is full of mistakes. It's full of failure. Some of it is regret and disappointment. But would we have the heart of this woman who ignored what it might have looked like, would ignored what people may have thought of her, ignored what maybe even she thought of herself, and come to Jesus anyway? Would you, for whatever you're known for and for whatever you've done, not let that be a roadblock from you coming to the feet of Jesus? Would you come to Jesus anyway? The woman does all this to the feet of Jesus, and what does Jesus do? Does he slap her hand? Does he tell her to get away? Does he tell her it's not a good time? Does he tell her, hey, we're eating? This is weird? No. He doesn't do any of that. No, he lets her come. He lets her do all of those things to indicate his heart that she is welcome. She is welcome. But apparently Simon thought different. Simon thinks to himself in his mind, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was and would not be letting her touch him like that. And then it says in perceiving this, Jesus says something. Jesus, proving the fact that he is a prophet, (laughs) reading his mind, not that you would need to read his mind. I'm sure everyone in the room knew what Simon was thinking. He's thinking, this woman shouldn't be here. This woman shouldn't be doing this. And she's ruining everything. Cross out. I want us to keep in mind that as we lift up the name of Jesus in this place, that people with imperfect pasts will continue to come. And as my brother Bob says all the time, he says people are coming from halfway around the world to come into these doors. We don't know what people's pasts are. But would we never keep anyone from coming to Jesus? Someone who might think differently than you, someone who might talk differently than you, someone who, ha- who might sin differently than you, would we never let anyone, would we, ever, would we never keep anyone from coming to the feet of Jesus? So to make a point, Jesus shares a story. He's essentially saying to Simon, I, I know that you think you know more about what's going on here than I do, but I know more about what's going on here. So let me share with you what's actually happening right now. And he says in verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my 
feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus shares this story with Simon about a moneylender and two debtors. One owed a lot, one owed a little. As a matter of fact, one owed two years' wages, the other owed two months' wages. So very distinctly different amounts. And yet the key phrase in the story is, and when they could not pay. Meaning that both of them couldn't pay. Amounts are completely irrelevant when you both can't pay. When you can't pay, you can't pay. So even though one owed a lot and one owed a little, they're both in the same situation. They both owed and they both couldn't pay. Jesus, using the story to paint a picture of reality, he's saying that the woman is the one who owed greater. Yes, she may have sinned more, but she's been forgiven much, and therefore, she loves much. I can see the evidence of her forgiveness in the way that she has treated me tonight. He then turns to Simon, and he says this. He says, do you see this woman? Do you, do you see her? Which seems a little redundant to ask. Of course, Simon sees the woman. She's making a scene. She's, I mean, it's hard not to see what she's doing. She's crying. She's, she's weeping. She's wiping. She's kissing. She's anointing. Like, it's hard not to miss the woman. Of course, he sees the woman. But no, that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, no, do you see her? Like, do you actually see her? Or do you just see the cover of her book? Do you see her for, what, for who she really is? Do you see her the way that I see her? Then he gets really specific. He said, I'm a guest in your house, and you should have washed my feet. You should have anointed my head with oil. You should have given me a kiss. You did nothing. You didn't even give me the common courtesy you would give just a normal person. But she has went above and beyond for me. And her actions reveal the state of this woman. Some of the subtitles in your, in your Bible says, um, uses the title, uh, the, the story of the, the sinful woman. A sinful woman forgiven. But the reality is, she is no longer a sinful woman. She is a repentant saint. Her actions, her behavior, her worship reveal her heart. They point to the forgiveness that she already has. Jesus goes on to say, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Not to say that her love 
earned her forgiveness, that her actions, this display of love earned her forgiveness. No, it, it, it was a display of her forgiveness. In fact, Jesus closes by saying it was her faith that saved her. Not the display of good works. It was a result of faith, much like it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what this means is that the dinner party wasn't her altar call. It was her act of worship and adoration to her Lord and Savior. That the things that she did at the dinner party didn't cause her salvation, but they flowed from it. So we've talked about Simon, and we've talked about the woman. I told you we'd talk about three characters in the story. We need to talk about Jesus. It's Sunday morning, it's church, we should probably talk about Jesus, right? We need to ask the same question of Jesus that the guests at the dinner party said when they said, who is this who forgives sins? The same question that King Herod says when he says, John the Baptist I beheaded, but who is this? The same question that the disciples asked when they were on the boat and Jesus had calmed the storm, and they say, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? When the crowds on Palm Sunday, the question that they asked when Jesus is riding in, and they say, who is this? We need to ask the same question. Simon answers that question by calling Jesus teacher. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. A teacher shares information, right? That's what a teacher does. Back then, a rabbi, a teacher, would be more of like a guide to life. They would teach information that would lead to uh, behavior change, right? Like, let me show you the way in which to live. They were a guide for life. They were a, a guru that helped you along the way, right? They were, they were an expert to consult with. They were a teacher, but to say that Jesus was a teacher would be incomplete and therefore incorrect. Jesus is not just a teacher. No. This story points to Jesus as someone much more than a teacher. It says here that Jesus forgave sins. That's a little bit above the pay grade of a teacher, by the way. <laughs> and everyone knew that. right? Everyone knew that if you sin... You sin against God. And therefore, the only one who can forgive that offense is God. So to say your sins are forgiven, the other people in the room are just, their mind is blown at the claim that he just made. On what authority do you have to forgive sins? So as we consider Jesus, we have to ask the question, is Jesus just a teacher or is he God? Is Jesus just a teacher or is he God? 
Because if Jesus is just a good teacher, he cannot do anything about your heart. If Jesus is just a teacher, he can only address the outside. He can only address the cover of our book. A teacher might get you to behave for a little while. A teacher might be able to get you to act right for a little bit. But it doesn't actually change the heart. But what Jesus can offer is forgiveness and healing and transformation of the heart. And just like the woman, would, would we be able to acknowledge who we really are? You know, the interesting thing about the woman is you don't need to convince her that she's a sinner. She knows. Would we take on the same posture and say, we're, we're like the woman. We're like the woman who, who, who we owe a debt that we can't pay. Whether it's 50 or 500 or 5,000 or 5 million, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you owe because the reality is you can't pay. Would we posture ourselves in a way where we acknowledge who we really are and that we need forgiveness? To come to Jesus in faith like the woman. To come to Jesus who has the power to forgive. To come to Jesus in worship and adoration knowing that he is Lord. That we would be saved, we would be washed and transformed by the power of God from the inside out. And that's the kind of transformation that we need. We don't just need behavior management, church. If you come here and all you ever do is just change the way that you live, it wouldn't be enough. You need the presence of God to enter into your life and through his power to transform you from the inside out. And that comes through faith. A simple faith, just like the woman. A belief and a trust in Jesus. We believe and affirm that Jesus lived a perfect life with no debt owed. And yet he was the one who paid our debt. And he paid it on the cross with his shed blood. And he rose again three days later in victory showing that he is Lord. If you're here today, I know there's a lot of people from our church and from our campus. Some of you have been coming to church for a really long time. I know that. Some of you from all of our locations, you've been coming here for a long time. But whether you've been coming here for a long time or, or you've just maybe started coming to church and you're kicking the tires of church and wondering what this thing is all really about, I want you to know something, that it's not just about cleaning up your act and getting your stuff together. It's not about that. It's about having a faith in the one who can really clean up your life. So I'd like to invite anyone for the first time if... You've never made that confession of faith. You've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. I'd like to invite you to do that this morning. It's a simple prayer of faith. It's not the prayer. It's not the words that save you. But I want to give you an opportunity, if that's you today, that you would pray this along with me this morning. With everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, would we pray? God, I know, I know that I'm a sinner. 
Lord, that I owe a debt to you. And Lord, I need forgiveness. But Lord, because of your grace, I know that you paid the price for my sin on the cross. Lord, I thank you for your demonstration of love. Would you come and be Lord of my life from this day forward? My desire is to live for you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, maybe for the first time, I would encourage you to let us know about that. We would love to celebrate with you and to follow up with you. We have a way that we do that. Uh, it's just through our connection card in the seat pocket right in front of you. If you would put your name and contact info on the front and on the back, there's just a little box that says, I want to become a Christian for the first time today. And there's nothing magical about that card. It just is one tool that we can use to follow up with you, to encourage you in your journey of faith, to point you in the right direction, and maybe to clarify anything that was confusing. We would love to be able to do that at all of our campuses. If you do fill that card out and you um, put it in the box on your way out, uh, a campus pastor will be in touch with you uh, within the week. Guys, for the rest of us, would, would we think less about what's on the outside and more on what's on the inside? Would we spend more time thinking about the pages of our book than the cover? At all of our campuses, I want to invite all the worship teams up right now as we close in prayer. Lord, God, I thank you so much, not only that you have come to do something about the problem of sin in our heart, but Lord, you equip us with the power to move forward in obedience to you. Lord, I pray for our church that we would never be a church that just pretends to have it all together. We would never be a church that hides behind the mask of a good cover. But Lord, we would acknowledge who we truly are and come to you anyway. Lord, that we would overcome whatever type of sin or shame that is in our past that's keeping us from coming to you, knowing that we are welcome at the feet of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for our people that we, especially as we worship, we would care less about what others, others think. We'd be more concerned about what you think and what you see of us. We elevate you today, and our minds and our hearts are set on you. In Jesus' name, amen.